Kid Bullock, writer, speaker, facilitator. <laughs> Welcome to Being Human. Thank you very much. Great to be here, Richard. It's, it's an absolute pleasure. And so I'd like to start with your book, The Intrapreneur, Confessions of a Corporate Insurgent. So perhaps let's start with that term. What, what do we mean by intrapreneur? And then give us some of the story of how you did that at Accenture. Crumbs, straight in there with uh, the intrapreneur. Well, I had no idea what the, an intrapreneur was um, until about 2007, when a person who's now become a, a very good friend, Maggie Dupre, uh, called me up out of the blue and said she was doing a piece of work on intrapreneurship uh, with John Elkington, one of my great heroes that some people will know. And um, she said, we think you are one of these people. And she explained it to me. I guess it's a, an entrepreneur, a social entrepreneur. It doesn't always have to be social, but this was the, the context. But a social entrepreneur inside a large organization. Uh, in this context, again, a big multinational organization that I was working in, Accenture. But it could be in a government body. It could be in an NGO. And um, someone who is, I guess swimming against the tide a little bit, trying to be a little bit of a risk taker, uh, troublemaker, no doubt, um, and driving change bottom up. So that's what I guess an, an entrepreneur was, and that was around about 2007. And um, it's great to see how this movement has emerged over time. At the end of the day, you know, the labels aren't, uh, aren't really that uh, that important. It's It's ultimately what you do. Right. Accounts, but uh, anyway, we can get it. There'll be plenty of time to get more into what uh, what it was, was doing or not doing and trying to do. Well, I mean, and it, it seems to me your your story is is a sort of perfect encapsulation of what we mean by entrepreneur and what, and what you did at Accenture. Uh, it was a bottom up movement where you created something kind of from nothing, which is what entrepreneurs do. I led a team that created something from nothing. Right. I'm not going to sit on couch. I get. I, yeah, you get a, a disproportionate amount, I suppose, of the, the, the credit and put on a pedestal always... for starting something or the founder of something. And it's this kind of hero syndrome, I, I would stress at, the, at the, the beginning. Yeah, okay, no false modesty here. There was an idea, it came about, goodness knows from where. But then a team emerged around about this. And it is an entrepreneurship, I would say, it's very much a team sport. Right. And actually, that's a yeah, that's a sort of that's a very important point to make, isn't it? Because you're absolutely right. We we focus on the hero. We seem to have a human need, right, yeah. to identify the hero and project something onto them. And well, we're all heroes in our in our own life story, I, I, I believe. But um, it's how we collaborate, how we work together, how we bring complementary strengths. I mean, my God, companies would be. Uh, um, really quite chaotic places if everyone wanted to become an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur in their organization. What we need is that blend of different, um, I think, capabilities, strengths, uh, characters that can come together. And that's what I think I was very lucky in, in having, is having a team that had that complementary thing. You know, a rugby team, if you chose only on size and strength, um, you know, it wouldn't be as effective. You know, you would you, you need these different sizes, shapes, abilities, speeds. And I think that's the same with, with teams and business as well. Okay. But what, but I'm interested in the moment. So what, what was the, so you're working in Accenture, you're a successful consultant, management consultant within Accenture. What, what's the moment when what you created, when did it start? The, 
the um, the epiphany, as I as I call it, and and this is a long we sort of we'll jump into the past before the book or the triggers for the book, which came many many years later. But if I take you to, um, I think it was March nineteen ninety nine, uh, in London where we are now, where I no 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 longer work and and live. But it was a kind of ordinary day. I was working in Accenture. I think, in fact, it was Anderson Consulting at the time. It's probably some brand police somewhere that will go uh, loopy about me saying this. But um, I'd been there for a few years, working with your colleague, uh, Audie. And um, it was great. You know, I, I, I felt I'd arrived. I was um, in this big business. I was amongst lots of bright people. I was earning a good salary. I had many of the trappings of, of success, the things we're told we should we should be striving for. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to drive a fast car, a Porsche, you know, and, and, and live in, you know, in this fast lane of business and, and uh, plenty of money and jet, you know, jet set lifestyle. And I had many of these things. So you had the porker. Uh, yeah, I had the porker. I had the porker and other things like that. And, and you get it. And it's, you know, you think, yes, great, tick. But there's something then, there's a voice in the head going, yeah, and what next? And so what? Do you want a new uh, porker? It'd be a bit of a <laughs> whatever, which probably many of your viewers are saying, yeah, whatever. Fair enough. Um, I, I, I have that kind of inverse snobbery now as well, that people driving about their Porsches. Um, I've had a friend who had a Porsche who got rid of it because he got so much abuse. Well, yeah, and, and, and again, this is back in 1999, so the, the, the times have changed a lot. You know, the context has changed. Even back then, it was a little bit, it was definitely ostentatious, but things like the, the environment, climate change, these things were not being, being talked about. So it's a very different um, social and business context that we're in now. But back to this kind of, uh, there was something missing for me. There was something, you know, had these things, but is this really what I want to be doing the rest of my life? Is this the purpose of my, my life? And, um, you know, it's funny because we think probably that the, the big changes in life or the, you know, the set piece events or a death of a parent or a birth of a child or changing jobs or losing jobs, and they probably have a significant um, impact in your life. But for me, it's the, it's the smaller, seemingly insignificant things uh, that can be catalytic triggers that can that can provoke a, a chain reaction of change. And for me, it was going to work on the underground, not the road to Damascus. It was the district line of of, of the London un underground. Reading the FT on this particular day, and I read a, an article. Um, it was actually written by Peter Mandelson, the uh, former uh, Labour um, New Labour chap. Um, I think he was an ex VSO volunteer, so it was something about. VSO, Voluntary Service Overseas, um, wanting more business people, more business skills in development. And it was a program that they had developed to go after business. It was really ahead of its time, I would say, because they weren't going looking for a check from business, which most charities do. It was saying, we want your people. We want access to your skills. We've got this program that we will borrow them for a period of time, six to 12 months. We'll give you them back, having used them to do, use their skills in a, in a developing country context. And the demand was twice the supply at that time. You really needed more of these, these skills. And for me, it, 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 it was an article, I remember it jumping uh, out the page at me. And, and, and it was, wow, I, I had thought this whole 
development and giving and supporting people in less well countries was that was for other people that was for doctors and nurses and teachers and do-goody people and here was me a business person in the London rat race but they needed my skills and yeah it was then that was the that was the initial thing I pulled it out of the pocket uh, pulled out the paper put it in my pocket forgot about it for a few months and then it was probably the summer of 1999 that I called the number on the thing and uh, um, there's some quite funny uh, memories of, uh, of of meeting a chap called Michael Shan who was I've, I've reconnected with him just a few weeks ago in London actually which was which was fabulous but he was the VSO guy running this program he we arranged to meet I you know dressed down in jeans and you know, hair shirt and wanted to sort of fit in with the NGO guy. He put on his best suit and came in. So it was, uh, there was a very funny first meeting. And then within a year, I found myself in, in the Balkans as a volunteer on a sabbatical from Accenture. And the journey had begun. Right. And what and what was your what was your job in the Balkans? What were you doing? I was, so I basically said to VSO, uh, I'll go wherever you need me. I'm more interested in the, the type of job and using my skills more than which country it's in. And I was into Macedonia just after the, the Kosovo war had finished. So this was around about September 2000. And I was working in a small UK government funded um, enterprise support agency, one of three in the west of Macedonia. I was happened to be in the, uh, the ethnic Albanian um, west of, of Macedonia, where there was still some, some troubles broke out while I was there and after I left as well. But um, trying to help small businesses get access to credit, uh, running training programs, but also trying to build the capacity of the local, uh, small number of local business people to create a self-sustaining support agency that wouldn't need donor funding, that could um, sell its services uh, and support staff. So that was my my job, and I, you know, was there as a on a sabbatical. I got a stipend, I think, to cover my mortgage. Accenture supported this program, kept my job open for me. But there was I, you know, ninety plus percent salary reduction from what my London salary was, and I'd never been more motivated in my life. I was fascinated by the work. I was um, here was something at last where I could see that my my business skills and expertise could be could be put to good use in doing something that was benefiting not just the shareholders of a large client or me personally it was it was a benefit to, to others and uh that's like a drug this whole purpose thing right and, uh, i reckon I, that was that was when i became an addict okay <laughs> or subsequently a dealer uh, i guess uh purpose dealer there you go right that, that, was the, that sounds like another type of purpose. yeah purpose dealer <laughs> yeah go for it and was there any part of you that was worried about, oh, what about my progression? Because I come from a similar background. I was working at the same time for oh. Arthur Anderson Business Consulting, uh -huh. which was sort of part of the same. Yeah. You started competing with one another, which is why the divorce happened. But, but, but I found that my drug in that scenario was, you know, how can I how can I get to the next grade as fast as I can? Or how can I out-compete the guy next to me to get an even higher rating? Mm. There's definitely that going on as a script. And I just wondered, did that completely go away for you or perhaps it wasn't there to begin with? No, it, it, it didn't completely go away for, for me then. Right. Um, I had, I think just, I, I kind of timed my departure so that I had just got a, a bit of a promotion up to the next level. So from a manager to what they call the senior manager, which is mm -hmm. the partner in waiting 
uh, yeah. stage. So the, the carrot of that partner and all that goes with it uh, is there. And we are very programmed, very programmed in consultancies, but in business in general, that, you know, you've got to be so, you know, focused on your career, what you're doing in your career, how things look, the optics of taking time out and things. But I was ready and I, I had great support from the bosses I was I was working for at the time. And, um, yeah, I thought, I'll go and do this for a period of time. Uh, do some good, give back, hate the phrase. Um, and I just pat myself on the back and then go back into what I was doing before, earn more money, get the next Porsche and try and make partners. That was my intention at the time. Okay, so there was still in the, was it like, well, that, that tracks on pause is sort of how you... Um, that. Yeah, that I've, right. you know, I've made this next great, now great up. So now's a good time to, to take a step out, but fully intending to go back into to the corporate greasy hole. Okay. So so you completed your stint there, mm -hmm. and then and then what's next? Well, I actually extended um, the stint uh, there. I think I signed up for six months at the time. I, I stayed closer to a year. Um, but it, it, I guess this was a, a real, maybe you call it a crucible moment. People have these, these crucible experiences. That might be a day or it might be a week's experience or it might be something that just um, triggers something in you. I had that crucible experience for more or less a year. You cannot go out of this comfort zone that I've been in or a bubble. We do tend to get ourselves into these nice cocoons and go into this incredibly different environment. Here was a country that uh, was on the edge of Europe, um, a couple of hours flight, just in the north, northern border of, of, of Greece uh, and, and, and Albania and just south of Bulgaria. But it was, I was going back 25 years of time and high, high unemployment. Uh, refugees had just come back into Kosovo, so there was still the sort of after, uh, after effects of that. There was really strong ethnic tensions between the Slavic majority and a growing um, ethnic Albanian mi minority. Um, average wages would be, uh, I, I don't know today's money, but you know, not much more than 50 to 100 euros a, a, a month. So you had this melting pot of, 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 of things, and you saw the disadvantage, the poverty, maybe not as extreme as as people would see in sub-Saharan Africa, but it has a profound effect on you. you I, I, I would lie about what car I uh, had back home when I was asked by my colleagues in the centre. I was too embarrassed to say what I had. Um, they were wondering why I was there. Um, had I, you know, had I lost my job or been sacked? Because who on earth would want to come to here when they had, I was living the, the dream in the, in the you know, as far as they would be concerned, the dream that I thought I was living as well. And I discovered that, that there was more to life out there. And during these formative months, it was then that the idea for what became Accenture Development Partnerships, the, the business that I would subsequently run in Accenture, the idea of why, and almost an anger as well, a frustration of how, how much more could I get done if I had my normal team of people there, the, the need was huge. I was scratching, not even scratching the surface in terms of being a volunteer. That was about making myself feel good rather than having a significant impact, I would say. You could ask my former colleagues, but um, more needed to be done. Why were 
Arthur Anderson, Anderson Consulting, PwC, Deloitte, at the time, conspicuous for their absence in these countries because there obviously there was um, not enough money to pay the, the, the rates that we would normally uh, charge. So it was that was the it was these long dark winter nights, I suppose cold winter nights, that in my apartment thinking about could we turn the business model on its head of consulting. Could we create not just a few volunteers in a CSR program, but actually a CSR for people? Sorry, corporate social responsibility. Yeah, Yeah. Um, we we consultants love our love our jargon, but um, is there a business model that could make this sustainable? Uh, Consultancies will take bright people, well qualified, pay them well, add on a margin, and put fees out there. If that was turned on its head, and we could say, well. Maybe people would work for less salary. The idea was could people maybe work on half their salary. Uh, there was I on 90% reduction. Maybe people would work on half. Maybe Accenture would give up profit on work that was about uh, poverty or, or, or in certain countries that were in commercial markets. Um, and maybe we could actually get organisations, development organisations, NGOs to buy services rather than expected pro bono or free of charge. The whole consulting industry has tended to uh, pride itself on giving away bits of free resource when they have people that are not receiving. Maybe we give them to a charity. Mm. That needs to be scaled and industrialised. So the economics on the back of a backpack or cigarette packet, I felt that we could actually get rates down to about 10 to 20 percent of the normal rates. Um, if we if we forgo forgoing margin and salary, and so that was the the idea was born at that point. In those long dark nights. Well, in those long dark nights, and then I, I guess the, the the thing that I write a bit bit about in the book um, that you have uh, have read. Um, well, how do you take an idea and sell it into to leadership? I was coming back having had this extreme experience about to go back into my normal job. And it was actually in a cafe in Thessaloniki on the way home. I was going home after a bit of uh, luxury time in Greece, which was next door, and just wrote a sort of fictitious two-page um, article in a fictitious Financial Times, I think, set in the future about Accenture's chairman launching this um, non-profit group, this social enterprise, corporate social enterprise in Accenture and um, well it, it wasn't lots of PowerPoint, it wasn't a financial plan in Excel, all that stuff followed but the idea was crystallised into a, a fake, press, fake press article and got it sent to the chairman um, which led to a breakfast, which led to a discussion, which led to a feasibility study, which led to a launch of what became my career over the next 15 years. Right and so you, the, the chairman rec- and it was the chairman receives this. I actually I didn't know who I knew the chairman by reputation. Yeah, um, Vernon Ellis, Sir Vernon Ellis now, uh, who who again I, I didn't know at the time. I, I know him very very well now, and he was a huge sort of source of support. But the UK head um, Willie Jameson at the time was the person that had supported the VSO program allowing a bunch of us to go to different countries. So I went to him first, had a debrief chat when I came back, showed him my article and said, look, 
I'm having some thoughts. What do you think? And he went, interesting. I'll send it on to Bernard on your behalf. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I wouldn't have had any relationship. So, yeah, getting to the top. Is you it, were the hierarchy. Well, uh, it, it worked itself. It worked it itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there is a theme probably uh, no, I mean, around you, how you, these things emerge. And you're correcting my bias to always want to make it about the individual sort of hero, right? It was a... It was a number of factors, the fact this guy backed it. Well, well, please continue with your individual hero, uh, Light of Christian. That's, uh, that's great and, and, and flattering. But no, the, the reality is it, it wasn't that. I, I, don't, I don't think I asked. I think he suggested this needs to go uh, higher up and I will arrange a breakfast, which he did, which I almost slept in for. But that's a whole other, a whole other thing. <laughs> it's amazing that you can get from Ealing to uh, the city of London in 32 minutes if you really are um, <laughs> if you're really uh, tight for time right that's in the book it's a wonderful moment isn't it? but you, you get that it wasn't at the time a wonderful moment <laughs> a wonderful story should I say not a wonderful moment I think I lived my whole business career like running five or ten minutes behind time and yeah. rushing around that's yeah. a big lesson I'm, I'm trying not to do that I think I was even early for this interview but uh, yes you were indeed yes it was us who was running late as well. <laughs> but no, but it, I did spend a long time cramming and, and, and pushing and, and, and planning and, and doing these things, um, which we all do, achieving, delivering. And uh, sometimes it's better to let go, but you know, we can go back to that. Right, yeah, because that sort of, that does chime with, well, we'll get to, you know, what happened later in the story. Um, uh, so, so the chairman reads this, this fake FT article. Then yeah, I'll speed it a, a, along a little bit. I'll give you the, 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 the I guess, what happened next. Uh, he told me subsequently, so the breakfast happened just, um, almost didn't happen at all. And I don't know what would have happened in my life if that hadn't, it would have been very, very embarrassing, that big break. But again, my point being, these big shifts in life can, can balance right. on the knife edge. Yeah. And, um, he recalled the meeting where he said, you know, I'm used to people coming into my office, senior partners he would obviously have, uh, mostly rather than me as a, whatever I was, a, a senior manager. But they would come in asking for a pay rise or a promotion or a whatever. I wasn't used to somebody coming along asking for a pay cut. So here was I with this concept, this dream, saying I think I and these other people would be interested in um, working for less salary if we were able to do this work. I believe that Accenture has the capabilities because we'd become Accenture by that point. I went away with Anderson Consulting and it IPO'd in 2001 when I came back. So I believe Accenture would be able to really have an impact here and that we could scale and industrialize the corporate volunteering thing into a business, a social business. And uh, that caught his attention. And uh, I think I maybe gave him a fictitious surf. In the, uh, in the article, which uh, subsequently became true, but apocryphal. Um, and he said, well, great, I'll need a bit more information. So we went off for six months uh, with a group of volunteers and um, got enough information to then get a budget for a feasibility study. So it was creeping commitment. I don't ever remember there was any particular um, gating process. It would just, we just gradually, um, kept going and, and, and the feasibility study where I grabbed and borrowed a few people 
to work full time on this uh, project, um, it highlighted we were looking at would NGOs buy services from Accenture at what kind of price point? Uh, would the economics um, add up? So a bit more detail in the financial plan. But most interestingly, would there be enough interest in this kind of work? And we surveyed and took a pulse of people, several thousand people, and we correlated between levels of performance and levels of interest. And we found that the, the, the performance curve was skewed, or the, the interest, the levels of interest were skewed towards the higher performing people. And that was very much the, the business case, the original business case, to say, look, the people we want to attract into the firm, retain in the firm and develop, are people who this proposition really resonates with. And then we were off to the races. Uh, pilot in 2002, we launched in 2003, and the programme scaled. And, and, and so the, the work we were doing, just to, to give people a, a flavour, people often ask, well, what the hell would business consultants with laptops know about development? And, and not very much uh, is or was the answer. But we do know about IT. We do know about um, how supply chain or logistics could be applied to getting medicines the last mile in the distribution chain. We know about um, HR or human capital development, change management, leadership development, mm. the things that, that, that you're about. Um, how can we use the mobile phone uh, or e-learning platforms to train nurses or, or doctors uh, more quickly, more cheaply? So you can bring that business and technology expertise and complement it with the expertise that the clients, the, the NGOs, that's what we mostly work with, non-governmental organisations, charities. So. Oxfam, Save the Children, World Vision weren't initially clients. It was quite difficult in the early days, but over a few years, they all became clients of ours and would all buy our services because they were paying a pound for what would, or a dollar, for what would normally cost £10 or $10 in the commercial rates. That was the sort of proposition um, to, 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 to make that work. And um, so, yes, it scaled. We doubled in size every year for the first few years. The naysayers were, were um, uh, amazed, you know, I had plenty of people saying, hey, um, you know, you're nuts, you're, you're, you're crazy to think people are going to actually take a salary reduction and do this stuff. Telling me I was nuts was probably, uh, they, may, they may feel vindicated by, uh, by that uh, later on, but that's a spoiler alert. Um, they, but people did, they were coming in, in, in droves. Um, and fast forward to And today. was it true that so you did this survey and it mm. suggested that you, the highest performers yeah. were those who were most likely to take the salary cap and do this purpose driven mm. work? Did that turn out to be true yes, in, it in, did. It did. in reality? Yeah. And, 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 and we targeted and, and made the programme available, and there was a. Um, you, you needed to be uh, average or above in the higher okay. performance um, half of the company to be eligible. So there was various eligible criteria. You needed to have minimum of several years experience in the firm, be a good performer, be available at the time that we needed you. So we were matching skills and putting people into teams to do projects. It wasn't one person here, one person there. It was teams like we would, very much like a normal consulting engagement. And um, yeah, I was just going to say that the, the, the interest is incredible. I mean, that today there's 45,000 people on the kind of waiting list. Well, see, this is what's fascinating to me. So, so we have this image of people joining firms like this because they want, and certainly one of what was one of my biggest motivations to join a similar firm was, you know, the high salary and the status and Absolutely. so on. And yet, it's, and it's the people who, 
you, you might consider to be those who are performing the highest because they want to chase this dream of, of more money and status and so on, who are actually most motivated to do yeah. work at a lower salary, which perhaps doesn't have the same status. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting scene. And, and it's not everyone. I can imagine people sitting here, you know, um, thinking, you know, mm, should I feel bad? That, <laughs> I, I like getting paid a good salary. Should I feel bad because I've got a flash car or a nice lifestyle? Not that at all. I mean, I've, I've been there. Um, but I do think there is some juxtaposition going on there that the old levers uh, of pay more, promote, all of these different incentives that, that we had when I was starting my career in the early 90s or whatever, they, they are no longer as applicable. I think they, there's still hygiene factors in there, but I think that the company or companies, particularly in the consulting industry, that really manages to tap into this whole purpose and meaning of, of work, when people can find themselves doing something and being part of something that is bigger than themselves, that is more than just a pay rise, that is feeling, you know, if what you're doing is actually about life or death, if you can go back and say, yeah, I, tr I did the platform that helped to train 10,000 uh, nurses, or I um, worked on this project to, to reduce uh, the lead time of essential medicines in Africa from 30 days down to three, Wow, you know, you that's something you want to talk about. That's something you feel proud to to say you did. And and the fact you were on half salary for a period of time, it's manageable. So there's something that I think there is a shift. Uh, yes, the, everyone talks about the millennials, but I do think that there is definitely a a broad shift in what people are wanting and what people are motivated. Right. Which uh, I don't know if you've come across the work of Jeremy Rifkin. Uh, Zero marginal cost economists, right? Yeah, and, and, yeah. But he cites studies where there's a the not-for-profits in terms of growth of employment of people. Mm -hmm. There's a higher growth rate amongst not-for-profits than for-profits right now. Right. Interesting. So that they're actually taking, in terms of growth, not in terms of absolute numbers, in terms of growth, they're taking more of the. Interesting. There's something going on, and and there's there's um, I mean, we can get to complexities here about how I I think the the, the boundaries that used to exist between the for-profit and the non-profit and the, the public and the private. I uh, Not only are they blooding, I, I fundamentally believe that they are being redefined and that uh, I would like to see them continue to be redefined so that we will see that business um, can have a role in areas that were perhaps previously the, the, the hallowed turf of the UN or, 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 or charities. Yes, some people will go over into charities but I think there will be some charities will morph a bit into different types of organization, be a bit more commercial. Some businesses will morph away from short-term profit maximization to bring their core competencies, capabilities, investment, technology, people towards starting to solve, innovate to solve social problems, profitably perhaps. But these sustainable development goals um, that the UN set out, these goals that we're trying to achieve by 2030, that we would have considered to be the corporate social responsibility or the foundation's domain or the UN's domain. These are, I think, mouth-watering propositions for business if they rethink business models, if they rethink short-term profit maximization. Um, but it's not a philanthropic agenda. It is, I think, a commercial agenda. How we feed the next billion, provide access to water, sanitation, energy, education, nutrition, healthcare, for me, these are these are opportunities to do things in a fundamentally different way, at scale. Mm.
and that for me is what's really exciting and, the, and, and that's where I think younger people going into business um, <laughs> I would love to I think they would aspire to have a career in business that is doing that kind of thing um, that is you know the brightest and best do care about that kind of thing and um, yeah I, 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 I maybe it's a pipe dream I don't know I'm, I'm maybe a bit idealistic but I I really do hope that business is the opportunity to, to start moving into that space. Yeah, I think yeah, you, you're absolutely right. And the other thing that comes to mind is Elon Musk setting up the AI company in the States. He made it a non-for-profit because he felt like that was the best way to attract talent, interestingly, right? And if you look at these are some of the best paid engineers on the world, in the world, they're, they're prepared yeah. to come and work for a non-for-profit. And it's, it's funny, I mean, again, Elon Musk, you, we, we, we talk about him there. He's not talked about in the context of being a social entrepreneur. Um, we don't label him that and put him on a pedestal. He's on a pedestal for other reasons. Um, but I, to my mind, he is probably the most successful social entrepreneur out there in terms of using the car industry or disrupting the car industry to use you know, a new business model to affect climate change in, in that way. And it's very interesting, I read just at the weekend, that he's now thinking about potentially taking Tesla back private. Again, I don't know whether you saw yes, that. Yeah. Because he's just getting so fed up with the short termism of of markets, but I think it's very very interesting there about the, you know, how successful he has been in such a short space of time, and how difficult that is to do when you have this um, yeah markets hungry for one thing and one thing only, and that's short term profits. Right, and was that an issue with Accenture because they'd I IPO'd before listed? They did. They did. Um, so back on the, the, the Accenture Development Partnerships that, that I was was growing, yes, things I think did change a, a little bit uh, when when the firm moved from being a partnership to being a publicly listed company, and it, and the share price has gone from two thousand and one, you know, it's it's gone up sixteen fold or something. It's been an incredibly commercial machine. I didn't know anything different in terms of my. Um, EDP days. Uh, I was working in a commercial business when it was a partnership. The sense was there were more nice uh, events and um, uh, annual um, celebrations in the summer or at Christmas time and things. It became a little bit more um, frugal, I would say, on, on costs like that. But for growing this business, it didn't really make a, a difference for me. We had to have a business case. And the business case was very much originally around people. And attracting people, retaining people, leadership development, giving people that different experience. Yes, we were having also a, um, a broad halo effect on the PR front, but I was very clear I did not want uh, marketing to seize this and just use this as a, as, a, as a PR tool. We were doing this for the right reasons. I didn't want to undermine the investment that people were making in salary sacrifice. The business case evolved then as well, because not only you know, were we not making a loss? So we were self-sustaining, scalable. We weren't needing a, a handout or we only needed a very small handout to get going. But it evolved because as, as we continued after five, six, seven years, after being told I was this entrepreneur, I suppose, and we got more awards and things were going well, we started to bring in commercial clients into partnerships and coalitions. So rather than us just working with one NGO in one country to do one project, we try and convene coalitions around a particular issue. Um, how can we get um, uh, 
vaccines the last mile in Tanzania, let's bring in the global fund, uh, Gates funding, Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola's inventory management expertise and routing and mappings locally. And we'd provide the, the glue, I suppose, in terms of people and the supply chain expertise in terms of people. Or how can we get Unilever and Oxfam working together on more smallholder farmers uh, in Unilever's value chain? Uh, Barclays and a number of NGOs to get microfinance down to the village level. So there was this really beautiful um, space that we were in whereby we were able to work on a not-for-loss basis with some of our most important clients to jointly have an impact that none of us could have individually. And again, that was the next inflection point to really, really get going. Once you so, found that way to bring in another whole set Absolutely, you... absolutely. So the business okay. case was multifaceted for that time. I can't tell you whether as doing that work with Coke and having over three years, I think we probably had 60 or 70 people working with Coke on the ground in several different countries on half salary, giving hundreds of thousands of dollars in kind from our employees. It didn't do the relationship, the commercial relationship, any harm at all. It was the thing that the CEO of Coke wanted to talk about at UN meetings and things. Um, I can't tell you it sold the next big IT system to Coke, but it, it was it definitely strengthened the relationship. And this was always a source of, I guess, frustration for me, or, or it continues to be a source of frustration in that we have this naive view in business of just looking at, well, Project A makes um, $1, Project B makes $10, Project B must be best. But if Project A is $1, let's say no dollars, but has a whole bunch of other things, 32% reduction in high-performer attrition in SEAD claims we had. Um, X number of hits in terms of um, tier one newspaper articles. Leadership development benefits. Um, all these other, other kind of things. It would outweigh, but, but people, would tend, people tend to go for the commercially, the, the business case that has the headline number on it and tend to ignore some of these uh, more intangible things. Uh, and that's hard. That's 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 difficult. And, and I think you mentioned more nuanced. I think in terms of how we evaluate business and not mm. just look at one hard number. We need to look at many other uh, things and weigh them up. Weigh them up. Yeah, because there's a moment in your book where you talk about getting your performance evaluation and you get a sort of average grade, right? And then you list off all of these achievements from ADP. And... Yeah. I, I was a, I was probably a bit of an obnoxious uh, uh, conversation, but it was frustrating in the first couple of years because I was still in the same peer group, if you will, that were out doing commercial things. And it was comparing apples with um, not even oranges. I wouldn't imagine it was probably something completely different. And um, so when my point being when we need when we want to do new innovations or create new business models, we need to think about how we get the right incentive mechanisms and reward mechanisms. If you hold people to be accountable to their old objectives that they agreed at the beginning of the year or the other KPIs, my KPIs were zero, 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 zero. So of course you're going to get dinged when it comes to the annual appraisal round. So somehow we need to ensure that, um, that these issues don't stifle innovation. Um, it's, it's part of what I, I term in the book the corporate immune system. You know, you have these antibodies, whether it's around your own performance or whether it's around um, controls and checks and balances in the business that is trying to keep the business on the commercial path 
mm. safely, securely going down the tram lines of growing bigger and more profitable. And if you're this way, the antibodies are going to uh, come in and come and attack you, mm. as they did. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, so how did you? As because you continue to 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 grow ADP, you continued to progress in the firm. You know what what were the tools, the weapons you used to to keep the uh, the immune system at bay? Very much guerrilla tactics, uh, I suppose. Um, in that, um, had a great team of people around about uh, me. I was very fortunate. People say, "Oh, you you grew a great team." It, it kind of grew itself. Uh, having that purpose thing was really a lightning rod towards that was attracting people from all around the the, the business in different countries. We we had a management team that grew um, over time. And then many, many people on projects around the, the world. So several hundred people uh, you know, would, be, would be used in a, in a particular year, which is a very small part of Accenture. But, but we were getting reasonably significant. And yes, promotions would come in. They were able to say, OK, great, you've done something good. I, I would get a promotion. We'd maybe get a, a nice award. Um, so things were going well. We had a, 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 a board or an advisory group internally with some externals as well that, that allowed our leadership to see what we were doing and so there was more awareness more understanding of what we were doing more success stories but we'd also then hit up against these these barriers oh you shouldn't be working in Ethiopia because of um, the fact we don't have a commercial entity there it could be a risk should you be doing that project for 50,000 there we'd have to quite often have people giving us a benefit of a doubt. So we would we would be friendly with people in legal and commercial or people in the finance department and, and try and get um, people to, to waive a particular control or a particular policy. And when we were relatively small, that was easy for them to do. Um, we'd, you know, if someone would come down hard on us, we'd try and get one of our personal from the board to, to go and have a chat with them and speak to them. We'd break policies, um, and just again back to this um, asking forgiveness uh, thing as well. So we had momentum, we were going, we were gung ho, we had some support. So yeah, we were, we were blazing, blazing a bit of a trail. Mm -hmm. but it wasn't always easy. And then when you get to a certain size, your head gets over the parapet, and uh, perhaps some of the you, know, you can no longer get exclusions or exemptions from from the policies. You become compliant, or we did end up having to become compliant. Right. This was okay. after being ten years in, or something like that. And there was changes of leadership as well, which is difficult because some of your early supporters, of course, move on and retire, and new people come in and ask new questions. Right. Or the same question again that you have. <laughs> You thought you'd put to bed something in 2003 and it comes up again in 2007 and again in 2011. So it's continually trying to resell the business case, which is difficult. Right. And and this is, well, we're starting to get to the point in the book where, you know, there's a there's a moment for you. And in the lead up to that, you're you're getting more pressure. And there's a there's a sort of character in the book, right, who's sort of very aggressively... Yeah, I have a, a, every book needs a, a nemesis uh, character, so we may as well get to 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 that. So it's been a, a roller coaster uh, journey. I mentioned to you from the tiny sparks of um, this wasn't a planned uh, career. Uh, none of my career, I think, has been very planned at all. Or, or when it's 
been more successful is probably when it's gone completely off piste. And we got to this certain size and scale and and I was loving my job, it was it was great, but over a period, this is around 2014, it was getting harder. Um, there was a nemesis character. Um, you call it sort of the bullying, yeah, I think I, uh, yeah, Frank. Frank is, uh, Frank is his name. He may or may not be a, a man, he may or may not be, well, he's certainly not called Frank, and uh, he may or may not be German, but uh, this person's been disguised. But it's a real character, and I think represents... Um, there's most businesses, I believe, and many people tell me that they have a Frank in their business. So it's it's fairly old school, person that's got up to a very senior level in the firm based on, I would say, business 1.0. Um, tight ship, run the numbers, focus on the profit, push people hard, um, don't suffer fools gladly. You know, was he any more harsh than, uh, you know, a tough show of the apprentice with a dare I say a, a Donald Trump or a you didn't think you could do this interview without <laughs> mentioning there but a, um, that kind of what makes good TV can also be kind of quite brush brass stuff yeah. but, but no I think there are people that can really chew up people in business mm. and put them under undue pressure mm. and think that they are doing the right thing by the firm think that they are just doing their job well think that everyone because it's worked for me and I've got to this level, then you should work in the same way. And I sincerely hope that that kind of attitude of business will gradually um, be 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 replaced by a new type of 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 leader um, that gets more about the purpose stuff. Gets more that business is not just about money. That it isn't about chewing people up and and beating them up or embarrassing them in front of others. I'm not putting the blame for what happened to me on this one individual's uh, shoulders. Not at all. It was a combination of factors. Some of them, no doubt, um, self-inflicted. But by late 2014, I was frustrated. I was losing some of my best team members. The more I saw the potential for us to do so much more than we were doing, the less I seemed to have the leadership support. So it was like a, an elastic band, right. almost. I was seeing this potential. Essentially, by that time, it had grown to be a a 400,000-person organization um, working in um, 100 countries around the world with 6,000 commercial clients. We had all the, the non-profit relationships and, and, and UN relationships. You had technology and digital disruption taking over and, and, and millennials wanting purpose in their careers. If we could get the choreography around these things right, then I, I felt that we could do incredible things at scale that we could have really gone to a different level but i was still trying to sell the business case 1.0 and not very successfully i suppose and that pressure became yeah it was pretty tough mm. and at the at the moment of your your breakdown your you you were working incredibly long hours sweating over a potential you know i presentation I, to the board yeah no i i, I guess i I'm not sure I was working any harder than I had been. Uh, I had, again, I, when you're so motivated by what you're doing, I, I loved the job I was doing. Uh, and, and many, I think, all, all the team did as well. You're working for a goal, you're working for a purpose. There is no boundary between, you know, five o'clock comes, you finish job and you start your, 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 your private life. These things became completely converged, if you will. It was a 24-7 vocation to a certain extent. 
and then when things are getting hard, it, it, it is difficult. And I, I, I will never really know exactly what happened, but the, the trigger point uh, that I talk about in the book was a trip to India. And I was on a leadership retreat uh, with an organization called Leaders Quest, which takes people, fantastic program, takes people away from their day-to-day environment and gives them, I guess, in a week what I had for the, the year in Macedonia. So a very intensive week-long program. Uh, this was in India. And um, I came back from, from that, very good experience, but I thought I'd got a flu to begin with. And the flu then became a deep fever. I was back in Switzerland where I, where I uh, live. And then the, the fever uh, triggered a manic episode uh, that lasted about well, about a week. I wasn't sleeping. I was having ideas. I was having flow. Um, I was dictating these ideas into my iPhone. I was dictating a letter to the CEO. I was dictating um, my resignation letter to prove to myself that I could I could leave the firm. Uh, and this all became it snowballed over the course of, of, of a week or so, and um, and then yeah, I was back in Scotland as it happened to see some friends for a friend's dad's funeral, and these friends said, "Hang on a minute, why are you you know recording things? I was taking pictures, I was filming, I was uh, I was the reality and illusion had blurred. They took me to uh, a check up in the hospital, as opposed to going to uh, the funeral that we'd intended to. So you had three large Scottish blokes in black ties and suits." marching down, I was frog marched down to a hospital in Glasgow and I ended up staying five days and five nights in, in a psychiatric ward there um, which is where the book is set, in this uh, ward um, wondering what the hell happened so I can I can smile and laugh about it now a little bit because I've been lucky, there's been no repetition since then, I have no history of, of mental illness but it was found it fascinating at the time and um, was it was it a burnout was it a breakdown was it a had India caused us a, a spiritual you know, awakening of some kind who knows but um, yeah that's what happened right and that was the trigger of the book right and then and you're now no longer with Accenture right I left uh, 2016 yeah I went back briefly and then uh, decided to go away and travel the world and write the book. Right. And, and ADP continues to... Accenture Development Partnerships is continuing and this is some of the great people that uh, the pleasure to work with are, are keeping it going. Mm. Uh, I've tried not to backseat drive. It's continuing. It's it's, it's doing some, some great things. Is it doing everything that I had hoped it would? Has it gone to that provision that I alluded to? No, not yet. I, I don't think. I think it could do still so much more if um, the will was there. But... Um, doing great stuff mm. and surviving without me good right and and so to what extent have you been filling your your time seeking to find answers to this episode or or versus you know other work that you now now do um i i guess a lot of the time in the, the since that uh, november december uh 2014 incident, the incident as I call it in the book with a capital I, um, I, I took the time and I had the luxury to, to take a bit of a break. Um, not everyone can maybe do that uh, depending on personal circumstances and things, but I was able to do that and travel the world with a computer and 
glass of wine using another hand and, 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 and write and read and go on various courses and events and try and understand a little bit about what was happening. Um, it's been a bit of a, a journey of self-discovery and, and trying to get out of what has been, I guess, the, there's a very strong gravitational pull to the, the past and what I was doing in the past. And I think many people find that it's difficult to, to get off a hamster wheel. Even if it's a hamster wheel, I was very happy being on. I was still defined by Accenture Development Partnerships. That was my job. That was my role. That was my life. And then I wanted to kind of escape that pool and drift into something a bit different while writing a book. Um, and you find yourself, you know, in the strangest places with the most fascinating people. Um, I was in Burning Man last year, um, which I'd never even heard of. And, um, I've been at events with people I would have never have come across and it's been absolutely fascinating and really good fun. Who knows, there may well be a, another book in that at some point, but uh, I'm uh, too busy trying to promote the, the first book. But um, all of this, what I'm telling you now, doesn't, you know, the book has stopped at the, at the, at the 2014 uh, yeah. period, but it's been fabulous. And, and, and I guess the key point I would say is it's letting go of the steering wheel. It's, I've been sort of more floating rather than driving and steering and planning. Mm. I managed to get rid of that, and and so um, allowing things to emerge, allowing new possibilities to open up. Yeah, I think we are all as individuals much more complex, broader human beings than we are told. We get put into a box, or put ourselves into a box of our career, or what we're good at, or what we do as a job, and yet there is so much more that uh, we could turn our, our, our ourselves to if we again allow things to come mm. and what and, and is are there particular insights about your yourself that you've discovered during this floating period <laughs> that perhaps were hidden from your view before oh, oh un, un, undoubtedly i'm not sure how much i, I will be able to go into in this uh, this interview that will definitely emerge uh, richard but definitely doing a, a lot of work on um identity um finding out some, we all have shadow sides and, and, and behaviours that have served as well um, in our lives up until now. And then when you start to go out of your comfort zone and challenge these things and see why you behave in a certain way, I so why I would behave or why I had certain habits or um, things that I would just test and try and do things uh, differently and um, be open to things that I would have thought were ridiculous or a bit too kumbaya or uh, spirituality is something that kind of slightly would would freak me out in the past is intriguing me and I and I am a completely agnostic about why things happen or, 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 or where we're all going but um, I, I've been able to approach this with a new kind of open mind and, and, and the more I, I go in with an open mind the more I find things um, intrigue me. I'm mean, very interested in even Jungian terms like synchronicity and uh, you know, this notion of meaningful coincidences happening. I, I found that a lot in the last few years and um, probably that's as much as I'll say at the moment but it, it, it's fascinating and it's not from any religious point of view or any uh, anything else than that. It's just I'm increasingly curious as to as to why we're here and, and how our lives are quite emergent uh, and our, our life stories are quite emergent and that we can change 
how things happen just by changing the narrative of our, of our own lives to a certain extent. Mm. And is there anything, like, is there anything that you've picked up in terms of an evolution of your own narrative? Is there anything changing in the narrative of Gib? Oh, oh, most definitely. I, I, I. But I'm letting I'm letting it emerge. I'm, right. I'm I had thought I would jump back into the corporate world. I thought I would maybe go and do an ADP type thing on the outside and bring in people from other consultancies. And I'm not doing that, and it's difficult because you, people do expect you to go back into this world. They, people will tell you. People project that. Uh, Oh, you know, your network will go cold. Your contacts will go cold. Shouldn't you be doing this? People would expect you to, you know, your name's written all over this job description that they'll send you. But gradually, as someone once said, I think your name has changed. The name or what, who you are has been evolving over time for me. So much so I've just, I'm, I'm tomorrow hoping to complete on a derelict farm on an island in, in uh, Scotland that I'm hoping to create a, a decelerator, a business decelerator that will kind of, you know, bring um, business people, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, hopefully, into connection with artists, um, nature, maybe musicians, and really sort of blend the, the creative sides and the artistic sides of, of our personalities with the more technical sides of things. And so that's the dream. And it's at the moment a pile of bricks in uh, five acres in Scotland um, that I bought for around buying for um, what you would pay for a garage in, uh, in London, but we'll see. So I guess um, that I couldn't have seen coming. And I, and I love these things that are just emerging. The opportunity came and I'm going after it. So if you ask me where I'll be in a year's time or five years' time, I have absolutely no idea. But I hope that it's about following intuition and doing what I feel is right. The North Star remains the same. It's about challenging and trying to change business and how we think of a business in society but how to get there and the, the route may well change a lot right is, is there anything in terms of personal practices that have shifted or habits that you've I do a bit of yoga now that right I, I, I thought it was a spectator sport can I say that no probably not when in my business uh, years but um, I I someone who liked active sports and martial arts and things, I thought yoga was a little bit. But I, I, I love yoga and uh, I want to do more in terms of mindfulness and, and meditation. I, I believe that's um, something that a lot of people get a lot of benefit out of. Uh, I eat better, I drink a bit less. I, uh, yeah. So I, it's been a wake-up call from, from that point of view of changing life's uh, practices and not having everything on the clock thinking about what, what I do next and thinking about these kind of um, telic indicators that are, you know, I need to do this to achieve that, to achieve this, to get me to whatever. It's more just, um, yeah, focusing on the being, not just the doing. Right. There's so many folk, people are so obsessed with, uh, with what they're doing, but they've, uh, they've no idea where they're going. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, stumped. <laughs> well, well, I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting idea that that to to just allow the next thing that needs to be done to emerge. 
as opposed to having the plan. Yes, that's that's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. It's scary and it's difficult. But um it's allowing you know, whatever this purpose is and following intuition uh, more and more rather than the voices of what people believe you should be doing or what the voices in your own head uh, as to you know what you think you should be doing and I think the possibilities then of you know you know there's the there's the motorway or the piece very obviously ahead of you but a little pinging in the back of the head saying maybe you should be going this way in this direction buy a flat in Scotland turn it into a thing or go and do an interview with Richard or whatever it happens to be big things little things but just listening to that voice and allowing that little ping you know because that's really what happened I suppose in the early stages mm. um, I, I found myself going off onto this this journey uh, this adventure and uh, crossing this threshold of fear that we have we have these lines of shouldn't do that because what will people think what will, how will it affect my career what should I do I found that if you do manage to conquer that fear and cross that threshold then doors open up that you can uh, otherwise happen opportunities come into your way that, and you get help that you wouldn't have expected mm. um, so a little bit of Joseph Campbell-esque I would say but uh, I, I think it's fascinating or um, Otto Sharman I think it's into a lot of these things with DAU being in a DAU course is one of the many things that I was able to do over the last few years. And in a nutshell for people, Theory U? Theory U is, well, his book is leading from the emerging future, so it's all about this letting go. It's based on quite Eastern principles, I think, of, of letting go of the old downloads of, of, of what we're told and what we believe, getting a space of, to a space of stillness and quietness where you can then allow your that inner voice to, to emerge and that inner purpose to emerge. I can probably do just do more justice to it than, than that in this uh, mm. in this interview, but um, I would recommend Dr. Sharma DDU. Um, he's a big MOOC, I think, one of these big online courses that they're, they're running in, and it's worth uh, worth people looking into. Read the book as well. Mm. And what what's emerging for me here, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that but in the, the latter stages of your work with uh, a Accenture development partners within Accenture, were, were you more on a a track of this is what I should be doing. I, I never questioned at, the, at that time that I, I, I thought I, I was so all in on Accenture Development Partnerships. There was no other job I wanted internally, externally. This was my thing. This was what I had. I discovered what I felt I was meant to be. I was put on this planet to do. And I was so invested in it that I think it ultimately became all-consuming and all-defining. And then it's... And, what happened happened and um yeah it's it's been a bit of a kind of um stumbled out of that environment into something new but um it's it's whatever happens sometimes is it for a reason i'm doing right yeah that's essentially where i'm going yeah yeah well and fascinating to see and, and, and the point is that actually things that can be seen as crises or problems are often opportunities for re-evaluation and and and, and are are, are these crucible moments that you can pivot on and, and, and change direction. Mm. So what happened, uncomfortable as it may have been, um, was probably the best thing that, that, that could have happened to me, I think. And, and where I'm at now is, is, is uh, I'm very happy. Uh, where, I'm where I'm at now, where I'm going, I have no idea. No. 
that, that maybe that's the message here. What where I'm going, I've got no idea. What a bold thing to say, I'm on. And that's fine. Just trusting to a certain extent, trusting again that you know, not looking too far ahead or saying that success will be this or, or that or setting ourselves these these goals, but allowing things day by day to to emerge. And there will always be, I think, these thresholds to of, of could I do this, should I do this, can I do this, of holding back. But then I think, you know, you're always spiralling um, as you take them take them on or take the challenges on. Um, yeah, it's 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 a kind of journey of, of, of life, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I can I can feel a visceral reaction just to just to be just to taking on that idea of well, what will happen will, will, will happen. You know, we could say it in a cliched moment, but the way that you're delivering the message with such sort of in, authenticity is, I can really feel that's kind of that's a scary. Prospect but that's me. three years. That's three years into a process, and I wouldn't have been saying this three, four years ago at all. And it goes back to a bit about we talked about heel things back at the beginning of the interview. Um, this is Joseph Campbell. Every Hollywood story, uh, the good films follow a, a sort of narrative of a hero's journey or heroine's journey uh, that Joseph Campbell popularised and, and that uh, George Lucas. Um, made famous for Star Wars and things. You, know, you can be commercialised, you could say. But it is a, there is a standard template that people can look up on Wikipedia mm. of being in your normal world and having a call to adventure and heeding that call and then going into a, a form of supernatural world. A bit esoteric, but it is a. you'll see that the, the, the Hollywood uh, themes and the good stories follow that journey and then this return back to the hero comes back to with the boon or whatever they've discovered on their journey and Campbell makes out that we all are the heroes in our own mm. lives and, and that we will all have these voices or calls that we will ever heed or suppress and um, well, do you want to take it on? Do you want to take on? What is the adventure for you? For you it's something different from what it is for me and for people listening um, but it's yeah it's it's fascinating. And thrill I mean, thrilling. I, this is the other thing I'm getting now. It's, a, it's, a, it's an exhilarating idea to think that I completely let go and just allow the next thing to emerge. Yes, scary and exhilarating. Try, I mean, yeah, ab absolutely. Um, it's really trusting, and 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 yeah, you will get told you're nuts. You will get told you should be doing this. People, you know, and it's just having that. That, that belief that you're 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 on the right track that you're mm, trusting in trusting in the, in, in the intuition in some whatever that intuition uh, is wherever it comes from right is it something inside the head is it I, I don't I have no idea yeah, yeah I, I have no idea are we all on this planet as um, walking about as individual hard drives or is there something a little bit more uh, connected uh, right who knows I, I don't want to speculate but these are things I find fascinating mm to how um, we do connect and interrelate and some of these as I say coincidences that seem to that seem to happen when you let go right right fascinating okay I'm sure we wouldn't probably even have had this conversation if it wasn't for letting go but, uh, but, there, but there you are yeah receiving a somewhat random email to come and kind of felt podcast right. in London okay I know that you've got a packed day here in, in London so um, we're going to need to let you go but Thank you so much it's for your honesty. Well. <laughs> and uh, it's been a thrilling conversation. I mean, I mean that.
Fantastic. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. And for people who want to learn more about you, it's the website. There's a website, gibbooth.com, which should be updated more regularly than it is. But uh, I'd also, um, if what we've discussed uh, is of interest to people, and I think the, the book, um, The Entrepreneur, Confessions of a Corporate Surgeon, available in all good bookstores, or more likely on Amazon. Which I can highly recommend. Oh, thank yes. you, Richard. You're, yeah. you're too no, kind. No, I hope people very, enjoy it. Very, very good. Very good story. Thank okay. You. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.